2: Hi, this is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe,
1: Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe.
3: Hello Snowflakes and welcome to the New European podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. My name is Steve Anglesey. I want to talk about empty shelves, empty heads. The last couple of times I've been to the supermarket, I've seen those empty shelves people are talking about. I'm sure you've seen them too. It's happening in all supermarkets. There's Shortages of fresh veg at Tesco, shortages of frozen food at Sainsbury's, shortages of glitter cannons and divers helmets in the middle of Aldi and Lidl. Is this all down to the pandemic? It's workers staying home after being told to self-isolate. Is some of it the fault of, you know what? Well, if you ask Leavers where the blame lies for this, Brexit seems to be the hardest word we've seen. The baking giants Warburton say a lack of loaves is because of higher rates of absence due to community infection rates of COVID and the knock-on effect that has with more people having to self-isolate. But the company concedes its current problems are down to a national shortage of lorry drivers. And we know that 25,000 EU haulage workers went home to Europe. Uh, They did that after the transition period ended. Could Warburton's reticence to blame Brexit be... Explained by the fact that their chairman, Jonathan Warburton, was a key lever. He wrote in November 2016, Brexit's a very good thing to have happened. We're well out of the rotting corpse of Europe. Meanwhile, the Brexit Crazy Daily Telegraph didn't mention the effects of leaving the EU at all in a 978-word front-page report on supermarket shortages. Instead, it said the shortfall of lorry drivers has been caused in part by cancelled driving tests. Now, look, you know, no one's pretending that with 600,000 people told to self-isolate in England and Wales in the week leading up to July the 15th and with supermarkets reporting that they've got delivery lorries queuing up, but no one to unload them. No one's going to pretend that ping workers are having little or no effect on the lack of some goods on supermarket shelves. But if Brexit was having little or no effect, the shelves would be full north of the border, where the Protect Scotland had pinged only 6,734 people between the start of July and July the 15th. Instead, we've got reports of food shortages from Edinburgh to Aberdeen. So in other words, what pings can only get better, it doesn't look like Brexit can only get better if only levers were big enough to admit it. Now... This week's podcast is longer than usual for three reasons. One, there's a bigger than usual summer issue of the New European this week, and there's more than usual to talk about. So I've got three brilliant guests, including uh, talk about how Boris Johnson damages Britain's standing in the world and talk about whether we should legalise cannabis. Uh, Two, the third guest today is Charlie Connolly the New Europeans Book reviewer. I'll we'll be talking to him about his new podcast, Great European Lives, and we'll be playing a short episode at the end of this podcast to whet your appetite. I think you're, you're going to like it. And three, I wanted to give you a little bit extra because we're taking a short break after this podcast so we can go on holiday to our front rooms. I'll be back on Friday the 13th of August with a couple of changes that I think you're going to enjoy. So first, what a pleasure to welcome to this podcast and to the New European, a writer and broadcaster whose first piece for us looks at how the world is reacting to Boris Johnson. Uh, Joining us for the first time, but uh, I hope not the last, it's great to have you with us, Rashmi uh, Roshan Lal. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm doing very well, thank you, in my part of South East London
3: marvellous marvellous your piece uh, is about uh, what the world thinks about boris johnson um you know no spoilers but i don't think it's entirely positive i mean let's start with india because of course people will know you from stuff that you've written for the guardian the independent people will know you from from the world service but obviously you, you know you started your career the, the times of india i know you were the editor of the sunday times of india as well India is seen as a huge prize by this government, to the extent that, you know, maybe it's risked public health by keeping the borders open for a couple of weeks when they should have been closed. How is the government, conversely, uh, viewed in in India? How is Boris Johnson viewed in India? And is is the Indian government as excited about a trade deal with Britain as as Britain is uh, about a trade deal with India?
1: You know, Steve, um, as someone who was born and bred in India but is British now, I wish I could answer in the affirmative. But I have to say to you that the tone is very condescending from the Indian side. And in fact, I did quote in the piece, a senior Indian diplomat who was talking about how fantasy, Britain's fantasy of being uh, very important in the world today uh, as it obtained, a fantasy has no cure, he said. Um, the same individual that I quoted, he's a former ambassador to several uh, European capitals, in fact, um, and elsewhere. He points out constantly in very acid terms that well, he uses terms like this, young India is bursting with energy and enthusiasm, but Britain has a minister for loneliness. You know, so the con the contrast is uh, constantly made of an India that is rising and a Britain that is in decline. I don't think this is strictly true, not whole wholly true, but that is the perception.
3: What do you th- oh, sorry. What, what, yeah, do you, what do you think that going back on Britain, going back on its overseas spending commitments means to India, and, and what does it mean? elsewhere elsewhere in, the, in, in you know developing areas?
1: Well India basically behaves as if it doesn't care at all about Britain's money because it regards itself as so big and so powerful that doesn't mean that it doesn't take it but it, it pre- behaves as if it doesn't care about that uh, money that comes from London. What India really wants from Britain is something quite different. What India wants is not money, it wants visas for its young people to come and work in Britain. Now, when you talk about international aid, overseas aid spending from Britain, yes, it does matter to various countries in Africa, various programs that Britain was paying for. That said, it's not going to change the world for them or their prospects, particularly if Britain doesn't you know, continue to uh, dedicate 0.7% of GDP to overseas aid spending. I mean, they'll find it some other way. There will be grants. There will be the the U.S. may step in on some things. The European Union may do so as well. There will be ways to make it up. I just don't think it looks very good, though, for Britain to say that, look, you know, we want to be global Britain, but we are not going to actually stump up what we promised in our own review of, our international outlook on ourselves you know it it just doesn't sound very good it's not it it doesn't sound very consistent certainly doesn't sound very trustworthy or reliable.
3: Yes and and being trustworthy and reliable is is something that we will definitely come back to in a moment I I mean just again thinking about India and the Commonwealth we had I was speaking. To, we had Bonnie Greer on the podcast a, a few weeks ago, and, and Bonnie is is talking about this idea as, as an American. She's, she's come here, and you know she 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 says that she thinks there's a section of British society, British people that just love the image of a bumbling upper class. Englishman, and that is why Boris Johnson gets away with with, with, with so much, so many bizarre things. Well, I mean, we saw his bizarre performance uh, at the police memorial uh, unveiling the other day, clowning around with a, with an umbrella. Um, mm-hmm. Does does this sort of bumbling English thing have resonance in Commonwealth countries? Do you think, or, or does it have more unpleasant memories?
1: Um, it is a cartoon Englishness it is Mm. really rising to you know it's self-parody and the world sees I think Bonnie Greer might be on to something the world I think would largely see and the Commonwealth would largely see Britain in Boris Johnson's image as you know charming chaotic cunning you know it lectures but it You know, then it taps its finger on its nose and knowingly and says, you know, do as I say, don't do as I do. There is all there are all of these elements of untrustworthiness, uh, bumbling, buffoonery. All of these are quite pleasing to the former colonies because they help them laugh a little bit louder you know, at Britain. Now, I don't see that Britain should be laughed at quite as much, but certainly Boris Johnson provides enough reason for people to say, oh, just look at him. I mean, he's got a, uh, a, a, he's just a self-entitled, I I think there was someone who called him the prime Etonian, you know? (laughs) So uh, someone who is always lucky, doesn't betray, doesn't show any particular principles, but gets lucky, yes, that is, that is often a, a complaint from particularly from the former colonies and why has this little country got so lucky over the centuries? Well, you know, Morris is an, is an example of that
3: yes he's an embodiment of it um yes. i wasn't aware until i when I mean, you talk about people uh, in other in other countries laughing at britain i wasn't aware until i read your your excellent piece that that even isis who are not known for their laughs um have been uh, have been writing uh, have been laughing at, at at britain what is what have isis been saying about
1: it well, this was right as soon as the referendum on July twenty uh, on June twenty third, twenty sixteen. Oh, okay. Ended, ended and then give up. They have continued on the same theme, saying that uh, the Mujahideen, that is their fighters, will keep their cells in the UK separate from those in the European Union to respect, you know, the demands of Brexit. And they have continued, you know, on these very jolly uh, lines. Uh, making quite a lot of fun, basically, of uh, Britain needing to separate itself uh, to no particular benefit from the largest trade bloc. So, yes, there is uh, humor, even ISIS is laughing, was laughing, and is, I'm sure, continuing to laugh at Britain. But that uh, to make a serious point, though, and to just return to what you were saying about the trade issue, Mm. India sees as well that there may be some benefit to Britain having left the European Union, while India is also declined to join the China-centred regional comprehensive economic partnership. And so, you know, both their regional the, the their respective regional blocs they are not in alignment with, and so can they in some way you know, try and help each other. Uh, Of course, as I pointed out, the visa issue is going to be key, something that Britain is not very um, likely to accede to uh, Indian demands. So we'll have to see what happens on that front.
3: You talk about the uh, the rift with uh, the United States, which is obviously is is extremely serious for Britain. i mean this is a this is a fundamental thing that that goes back to the the, the trust that we we talked to that you talked about earlier do, do you think that is resolvable with a a, a sort of a, a hard brexit government uh, run by boris johnson with david frost uh, running around do you think do you think that rift can be healed quite easily
1: well i think we'll have to see what happens with the northern ireland protocol um, I don't think because the Biden administration was never, Joe Biden himself has never been in favor of Britain leaving the European Union and as vice president, Barack Obama's vice president, you know the Obama administration was very against it too. So we know what they're thinking about this damn fool move as they would put it perhaps to, to leave the European Union. That said, so if you put the Northern Ireland protocol to one side, let us discuss then what the U.S. actually is talking is thinking about the U.K., the U.K.'s global Britain's attempt to fly the flag for itself. Well, the U.S. Defense Secretary, Biden's Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, just a couple of days ago, he was, uh, I think, in Singapore, and he said Britain might be more helpful as an ally if it doesn't focus on Asia. And that is just as HMS Queen Elizabeth has been uh, dispatched to, to the Indo-Pacific region. So you know, you have to wonder is London not talking enough to to DC, to Washington DC? What is going on here? I mean, while we're to, while we're saying well we're still very close allies and we discuss everything, they're telling us off even as we've just sent, you know, the first uh, the new British aircraft carrier to the Indo-Pacific. So I think there are a little bit there's there's a schedule scheduling issues I think in the way they're discussing things
3: how serious is this sort of crisis of trust though around the world do you think and and the idea that it threatens the the soft power of of britain because you know when when britain is eager, is is willing to give away trade deals like the one it's done with australia which is extremely beneficial to to australia it shafts uh, farmers back in Britain, then surely people are just going to queue up to do, do deals with Britain in, in any case, because we're, we're giving them away.
1: Well, I think the, the perception of unreliability, I think it is a very dangerous thing to happen to Britain. Uh, the, there are a number of problems, not just unreliability, the folly of Boris Johnson's cabinet, you know, the, the various actions that they undertake. I mean, it's, it's really like bananas. It's like Alice in Wonderland, you know, like the Cheshire cat said, we're all mad here. The hypocrisy. the the Also, I think there is an element also, uh, a sort of courage, um, a willingness to just risk it all, you know, and, and damn the consequences. So that is the only thing that sort of they have going for them as a, as a bright, shining narrative. But... I think the element of unreliability is going to be very hard for Britain to get past. You you point out to the trade deals with Japan and Australia, you're right, that people would like to sign up to various things so long as they get what they want. The question is, will Britain get anything of what it has been promised by this prime minister? Um, Will it be able to make a success of any of what it does get eventually? Is there anything to be done with it? I think all of these issues are open, and most capitals would be looking at this country and wondering what went wrong and why. And we are still not passed this uh, this stage. I mean, twenty uh, Boris Johnson is, I think, what is he, the twentieth prime minister from Eton? It is a easy caricature you know of Britain just being led into dissolute ways and you know betting it all on on the blonde basically to no to no benefit
3: that is a uh, it's a, a, a scary prospect I, I, I wonder if there is anything that that can be done by this government in the the short term to to reassure the international community to reassure countries like India uh even without going towards the US, what could what could be done to kind of reassure people that uh, that the government is is at least pulling towards a, a, a more sensible uh, course of action than it, it seems to be?
1: Well, I think I mean, okay. So what they have just done is they have now decided that they're going to allow everybody into Britain. Um, you know, if you're from. Yes. Amber list countries, you can come in. If you're from the US, even with your paper uh, vaccination records, you can come in. From from the EU, never mind whether there are inferior vaccines, supposedly inferior vaccines like Sinopharm that you've been vaccinated with, you can come in. I think this is going to create... um, (laughs) Funnily enough, and this is the audacity of the Boris Johnson administration, the government, that, you know, it just bets everything. There's a recklessness to so the recklessness of the Great Reopening, it may actually prove to be successful. There is going to be some goodwill towards Britain for allowing people to come in and visit, you know, maybe their families or whatever. It will also be good, presumably, maybe good for uh, business in the UK, for UK businesses, for the tourism industry, and so on and so forth, aviation and tourism sectors. So, what, so th- that is temporary. What is the deeper thing that Britain could do? What could Boris Johnson and his government do? Keep your word. Mm-hmm. If you have said you will do something keep your word. I think the Northern Ireland protocol to just tear it up or to just signal that you will suddenly move back on it. It's not just about Northern Ireland. And there are some issues there that the European Union is also being difficult about to be fair, but I think what it signals is that you don't care about rule of law. So when you then turn around and tell the Chinese that you should be behave in X way towards Hong Kong, they'd say, well, look at you. Who are you to talk? I think keep your word is the main thing. But that is probably difficult for Boris Johnson to, to do. Has he ever kept his word? I mean, tell me, Steve, have you well, any There is, a, They
3: say there's a first time for everything, Rashmi. So <laughs> maybe uh, maybe this maybe this will be it. Um, that was, I think, was your, I mean, it was your first time on the podcast. It, it, it's your first piece for the New European, I, I think, and I, and I hope you, you write many more of a, uh, uh, for us. Uh, it's been great talking to you. That's uh, Rashmi Roshan Lal.
1: Thanks so much, Steve. Had great fun. Thank you. Hi, this is Sophia Deboit. I write every week in The New European on the music scene
0: across Europe and the UK. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe.
3: Uh, Rashmi Roshan Lal there. And uh, I've just been I've just uh, I've just been reminded that uh, that she wrote a great piece about uh, Haiti. For the new european it's a second piece for the new european uh check it out on our website the um now let's turn to cannabis a very tempting prospect when boris johnson is your prime minister but james ball will be joining us in a moment to talk about why we're lagging behind uh europe and america in our attitudes to decriminalize marijuana before james we asked new european podcast listeners that's you what you think about this issue an incredible response thank you so much uh arthur smith says make uh, cannabis legal it's the only way to endure more years of a boris johnson government uh mario Luzzi says i thought cannabis was legal last summer during lockdown it was like being in amsterdam everyone riding bicycles the smell of weed uh, absolutely everywhere you went fiona hopkins says In London, a couple of months ago, I walked past a couple of people smoking a joint right next to the Houses of Parliament. People are smoking it everywhere. While it's illegal, it's in the hands of criminals. Legalise, regulate and tax. Claire Becks says... The war on drugs isn't working anyway. It's a waste of police time and resources chasing after cannabis suppliers and users. If cannabis was legal, it could be regulated. There might be fewer problems with the use of modern slavery in its production. Matilda Pierce uh, peace, sorry, says, uh, look at what Portugal did. It seems to have worked. We'll be talking about Portugal with James Ball in a second. Uh, Paul Stephen Nutter says, Uh, Definitely don't legalise cannabis, it damages people's abilities, it adds to the burden on the NHS. Andrew Chandler says cannabis should be available on prescription only, taken in the form of oil, obviously that would uh, help people. With uh, for whom uh, medical uh, cannabis is uh, is something that uh, that helps them. And Harun Moa says, why legalise cannabis if it's for no gain to people's health? So so people saying maybe legalize it but only for uh, medical use and that's how it started i think uh, in america which we'll be talking about with james shortly uh finally chan i johnson says the issue with legalizing or decriminalizing any drug is not so much the health issue but who is making money out of it right now it is seen that the in uh, quote marks the wrong color of people are making the money governments don't like that take the us as an example a country much more conservative than ours it was only when large white owned pharma companies were able to own and regulate the use of cannabis that it became legal James Ball, global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, new European columnist, joins us to talk about the legalisation of cannabis. James, it's, a, it's an issue we keep coming back to, and the answer always seems to be what kind of government or major party in the UK is going to be brave enough to advocate the, the legalising and decriminalising of all of this? I mean, we've got this ideal situation now, isn't it? We've got a libertarian... Uh, in number 10 who, who says he doesn't like telling people what to do. He's desperate to raise revenue. Am I, should I start rolling
0: my 12skin Camberwell carrot in preparation? <laughs> I'm not sure you should be skidding up just yet, I'm afraid. Um, it's, it's quite a bizarre situation in that, as you say, all the factors seem to be there. There's not really a political cost anymore to saying for a politician to say that they smoked cannabis. I just don't think there's any voter that cares. Uh, I don't think you've even got to get any credo with younger voters by saying you do. Um, British public opinion's pretty strongly in favour of it. It's about 52% in favour and 32% against. And as well as sort of some of the obvious benefits, you know, as you say, the tax tax revenue, a lot of the UK's organised crime problems actually come from weed. Um, and it's things like protecting growing sites and uh, you know how you sometimes see police find them being grown in sort of rental properties because when it snows, you can see that the snow is melted on one roof and one roof only because of the heating yes. of the plants. Criminals seem to do that too and they've got infrared cameras and they'll do armed raids on other cannabis farms which have led to people being killed. And so when we've seen other countries legalise, when there's support here for legalisation, when there's some evidence it could do some harms, but certainly not well out of line with alcohol or tobacco, it all seems a bit odd. And I'd always put it down to, and I do think there's a lot to it in the UK, that we have two main political parties that really are the only show in town when it comes to forming a government and which are often in competition with each other, and which both lean authoritarian by instinct. Boris Johnson might be more liberal than his party. Keir Starmer is probably more liberal than his party. But they're both going to work on the basis that it's pensioners who vote, and pensioners are the most likely to be anti-legalisation. But it turns out when you look at Europe, there's kind of a bit of a bigger story to it as well.
3: What's
0: the, I mean, what's the... The situation now
3: we can talk about... We, I was just reading out some some listener uh, views on this and people were talking about Portugal and, the, and then uh, a couple of people were talking about when they went to the commons recently and they saw two people openly smoking marijuana in front of the, the commons. Is it, I mean, it, it, you can't go for a walk, can you, around a, a major city without smelling the, the smell of, of weed or cannabis or
0: whatever. Is it effectively decriminalised here already? I mean, it is effectively decriminalised here already for end users. Um, It's a very, very weird situation in the UK, as it's more or less a kind of weird honour system with the police, in that, in theory, just possession of cannabis is enough to lead to a five-year prison sentence. And that's with no intention to supply, with just enough for personal use. It's a category B drug which is somewhat insane because as a general kind of policing order, um, I don't know whether this is formerly England or Wales or right across the four nations of the UK, I'm afraid. Um, There's basically been an order to confiscate and not warn and not arrest. Um, If you deal it, however, uh, even in relatively small amounts, on paper at least, you can get a prison sentence of up to 15 years. And so it's decriminalized for the user, but not for the dealer. But nowhere in Europe has gone much further than that. Um, and researching this piece, the thing that really jumped out at me was um, the Netherlands, where, of course, famously people go on holiday just to go and sample the weed cafes and so on. It's not actually decriminalized there. Like, cannabis use is still formally illegal in the Netherlands it's just they've come up with this workaround where provided it's done in cafes in line with regulations it's legal but this means that it's still illegal to cultivate and distribute it there which means that these cafes which are essentially providing a well-known tacitly legal service since the 1970s that's part of its tourist trade have to really struggle to get supplies on the black or grey market. And so you've got this strange position. You know, Portugal has decriminalised pretty much all drugs for the user, but has stopped well short of legalising it. And so we seem to have this odd halfway house where we don't sort of get all of the benefits of legalisation. You know, consistency of supply, a safer supply. Uh, hopefully breaking up the gangs, being able to raise tax revenue from it, which could help pay for any health services for people who do get in health trouble. Everyone seems to stop short and take this decriminalisation route, which might make life easier for the users, but doesn't really seem to fix the actual problems.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I've been reading quite a lot recently about Amsterdam and the, the, the mayor of Amsterdam's efforts to kind of, you know, rid the rid Amsterdam of the uh, of the, the the image that it's got. I guess in the in the same way that the mayor of Prague has been railing against uh, stagnates, and 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 people in Ia have been railing against uh, uh, the the kind of you know summer holiday activities that well, I suppose they used to go on in in and, and maybe they'll be shortly to be resumed in in Napa. I mean, the, the, it's so weird, isn't it, to to say that. A place that seems to be getting it right um, in terms of regulation, in terms of raising some tax revenue, is the country that elected Donald Trump in 2016 and, and where 74 million people voted for Donald Trump only last year. How, how, is, how has this happened and, and what's the sort of because obviously it's a checkered position, isn't it, with the with the state system in America? What what happens there and how has it how has it come to
0: this pass? It's, it's quite a strange one really in that on paper you would think weed would be a great culture war issue you know old versus young it's hedonistic people you know, it's got the whole liberal countercultural history um, and I think it's actually got a lot to do with the fact as I say in the piece it's got nothing to do with Washington DC. Um, the the. US is very federalized which gives individual states a lot of power. Um, and obviously it lets different places move at different speeds. And so all but, I think, four states have done something along the lines of either decriminalising weed, legalising it for medical use only, or fully legalising it. Now, this gets complicated because it's still illegal at federal level. So you've got the very odd thing where you could drive a shipment of weed from one state in which it's legal into another state in which it's legal, and you might have committed a serious federal drugs crime. Um, and so there's lots of barriers and complexities, but they've largely, in all but four states, legalised it to some extent. Now, the second part of why I think this is, because there's a lot of very federalized European states is that in the US, a lot of states have it very easy to put ballot measures on, as they call them, Mm. which are essentially referenda. And it seems like when you don't have to have a political figurehead behind sort of drugs and a party doesn't have to make it one of their issues, it can just be an independent campaign, it's much more likely to pass. And we don't really have that kind of direct democracy in very many European countries um, Switzerland is quite big on them, um, that, but doesn't really seem to be in any rush to legalise weed, possibly because it's not got the most sort of young and bohemian population. Um, but I think the combination of it being well away from DC and actually being possible to come up from the grassroots and locally organise has meant it's got ahead. And that's sort of got a lot of benefits. But as I say, you've got these strange sort of contradictions about crossing borders and you still have tens of thousands of people in us prison for often quite low level marijuana related offenses when it's legal and almost encouraged in quite a few states now and the injustice of that really seems quite a powerful one to me especially when a lot of those people are of course sort of black or indigenous people of color yes or i mean it's all people of color sorry
3: yeah
0: i mean it's it's just it's
3: fascinating to me I certainly think that in my, you know, in in my travels across the states, sounding like old Palin there or old Michael Portillo, but in the, you know, I do. I've come across. I've been surprised many times by by people of different demographics. Usually, older people, you know, who who oh, I would have never thought. Uh, would would smoke marijuana. Who who either pulled out a joint at the end of the night or made some reference to it. And I think the American sort of libertarian thing as well kind of plays into uh, plays into that. And, and obviously it's a, it's an outdoor culture, isn't it? Unlike uh, unlike the one we have in in Britain. There's there's an awful lot of places to to uh, to to grow marijuana outside, uh, which we kind of don't have. Um, when just before you came on, and I was reading out listeners' response to, to, to these ideas, you know, a couple of people were saying, "Well, if we decriminalise it or, or legalise it, even it will put even more strain on the on the NHS." People are saying, "Well, it's it's you know, it's bad for for people's mental health." Uh, strains of, of cannabis are much stronger than they used to be, all of that what, what are the what are the, the good arguments for keeping the status quo as it is now do you think?
0: I'm not sure there are that many um, I think by the time you start saying okay the harms for cannabis are so bad that we shouldn't legalise it I think you hit a point where it gets quite difficult to explain why tobacco or uh, alcohol are legal other than the historic one of people have tried prohibition and it didn't end very well. Um, Cannabis does do some harm and both decriminalization and legalization seem to increase its use. But if you're worried about the strength of it, the best thing to do is to be able to regulate it. Um, You know, we know how strong a cigarette can be. It has to be on the label that has to be accurate. We can do all of that because it's a legal controlled product. Um, Similarly, if we wanted to limit the strength of weed, we could le- do that if it was legal and most people would stick to that stuff. Similarly, if something's doing harm and will require public service to do it, at the moment, cannabis contributes nothing to our tax base. If we tax it, it probably wouldn't be more expensive because the markups at the moment, because it's legal are huge, but that money would be going to you know, fund the NHS and to fund some of the damages that it does rather than to fund criminal gangs. So I think other than the fact that some of us don't like to, you know, want to control other people's behaviors and want to control what makes them sort of happy, I think there's quite a thin set of arguments against, I would say, full legalization. I think decriminalization is quite a bad halfway house.
3: Mm. I mean, let, let's end where we began then. So. You know, I used to think that this would never happen in my in my lifetime, and now I'm not really sure. You know, it seems more likely to me that it, it might happen than at any time, simply because of things that are going on in in Europe and, and the United States, which we always look to. What what are the conditions? What would what would it take? What what, what would be the tipping point for the Conservatives or Labour to say, yes, okay, we're going to try and test this.
0: I suspect it will probably move fairly soon. I think, you know, when you look actually both in the US and the UK, pretty much every generation from boomers down strongly supports legalization. Um, it's the sort of so called silent generation, uh, really, that doesn't. And in 10 or 15 years, that's going to be a fairly small cohort, sadly. So I think there's a demographic tipping point coming as well as just a general political shift too and I think these things happen you know the phrase very slowly then all at once mm. I can remember um, being out in Washington DC and I was having dinner with someone I, I was then dating and a DOJ official, a part of justice official and they both bet me that US gay, gay marriage wouldn't be there in all 50 states in the next I think 15 years something like that Uh, And three years later, it was legal. Um, And these were sort of DC insiders who wanted it, who wanted that policy. And so the speed of things once they start moving, I think, can surprise us all. So I could easily see see us talking in 20 years' time and it not being there, or as talking in three or four years' time and actually weed is officially decriminalised or maybe even legalised. You know, I do think it's possible uh, and I'm aware that's the worst kind of hedging offense. It's certainly
3: uh, well, you know, it's it's a, it's a, an amazing uh, it's an amazing thing to me um, as uh, in my time of life to to even be talking about this. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I just think the arguments for for for, for doing this just outstrip anything uh, any caution that, uh, that that we've we've had. Um, it's great to talk to you as always, James Ball.
0: Thanks very much.
3: Thanks to James Ball. His excellent piece about Britain and cannabis is in the summer issue of the New European. It's the one with Boris Johnson as an ice cream cone um, on the front. Um, obviously, you can read more stuff in the New European. You can read my columns if you like. Uh, we've got a big quiz in there. And of course, you can read uh, Rashmi Roshan Lars' piece about how Boris Johnson is seen in the world. If you would like to get more from The New European, then please join us uh, by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And now before the Hall of Shame, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the podcast, The New Europeans Fiction Reviewer, the man behind our Great li- great European Lives feature, rather, which is now a podcast. It's Charlie Connolly. Hey, Steve, how are you doing? I am well. It's nice to hear from you. Um, Charlie, let's start with, with uh, Great European Lives. For for people who listen to the podcast who are maybe less familiar with Great European Lives, uh, what is the concept of it and what makes a great European life, do you think? The concept is
2: um, we started it as a kind of timeless obituary in the paper where... Yes every week in we we choose someone from history a significant European usually cultural rather than political figure who would have died that week in history is how, how it began and we're well we're well past 200 of them now aren't we um, and the selection process is well it's kind of a mixture of uh, somebody who's a notable name uh, and somebody who's got an interesting story as well so I mean a lot of them when we've, when we've decided on the subject for that week, it's often someone I've not really heard of, to be honest. So, you know, it's quite educational for me to go in and start researching these people. And obviously a lot of them are really big names as well that people know something about. And I think, yeah, the important thing about making it work and possibly why it's going to work as a podcast so well as well is that it's not just a kind of cradle-to-grave account of someone's life. It's sort of slightly more nuance that kind of will maybe will pick out one event from that person's life that maybe will illustrate a wider story as well so um, I mean I've really enjoyed writing them and I've really en- enjoyed recording the podcasts we've done so far um, and I think it all builds up they'll say we've done more than 200 of them now in the paper I think it all builds up to give a really uh, wide-ranging view of Europe certainly culturally it's it's we're building a story of Europe through some of its most notable people essentially and uh, and it's now translating
3: into podcast form uh, and it's really good it's, it's really good I mean you can uh, as, I, as I said earlier uh, before you joined us we are going to play a full episode of this to, to wet people's uh, appetites, but the, the first series is is available now uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, there are some familiar names in there. there. There are some unfamiliar names in there. You've got Valentino, you've got Marita Sword, you've got poor old Sophie Scholl um, and her brother, you've got Johann Cruyff, but then you've also got people like uh, Brigitte Helm, Jean-Pierre Blanchard, George Gaines, Hélène Boucher, mm. Tell us, tell us something about any of those people, or, 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 or something that, that comes to mind when you think about the, the ones you've recorded.
2: Um, I mean, I liked. Uh, I'm quite a big fan of Blanchard, Jean-Pierre Blanchard, who um, some people might know was the first guy to cross the. English Channel by Hot Air Balloon in 1785 because I mean a lot of the subjects we do are quite worthy they're quite serious and you know you have to have a really serious good look at them but someone like Blanchard he was such an incredible character Um, I mean a colossal ego I mean it's 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 a wonder he couldn't just cross the channel on the size of his ego just to to walk across it Um, and he was he was it just made stuff up about his achievements um, and But at the same time, he did become the first person to cross the channel by a hot air balloon, which is an incredible achievement. And it helped to kind of of shrink the English channel, really. It was was one step in the the process that made the channel less of a a moat around these islands. Um, So I think he was a really interesting fella. And uh, you mentioned George Gaines as well, who um, was born in Finland. I mean, most people would know him as uh, Commissioner Lassard from the uh, Police Academy films. And he was also in. Tutsi as well, he had a part in Tutsi but he had an incredible life Um, You know, he was born in Finland, he was uh, part of the Dutch resistance in the war, he he worked with the British Navy during the war because he had quite a peripatetic childhood with this incredible Russian mother he had who was uh, a society sort of uh, hostess and she had these affairs with all these famous European people and dragging poor little George around with her and so he had loads of languages and loads of experience of, of life in Europe and he was fluent in German, so the Navy employed him to kind of listen in on German um, radio messages and translate them. So, Commissioner Lassard, the big dopey police commissioner from Police Academy, was actually a, a, a bit of a war hero as well. And they're some of my favorite. Characters, those ones, those real kind of left field ones you wouldn't expect. I mean, I, the name George Gaines. I mean, it was a name he adopted as a stage name. I can't remember what his, his his original name was. It was something quite complicated to say, but you wouldn't associate him as a great European life, the, the guy out of police academy. Yet yeah, he had this incredible backstory, and I think that's um, one of my favourite things about the 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 podcast and the feature in the paper is finding these off the wall stories rather than conventional someone is really good at something, has a good career, then they die. Then you've got these really multi-talented people like George Gaines who have incredible stories to tell as well. And you know, we've got almost a, a bottomless pool of, of candidates for the
3: feature. So we, we could go on as uh, forever pretty much with these incredible people. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 find, you do find out the most fascinating things about, about people and, and George Gaines is, is a, a prime example, but even, you know, Zaza Gabor who I I remember from my childhood as a kind of I mean she was a kind of a comic figure wasn't she with her ridiculously um, you know her her, her over egged um, was it Hungarian accent and stuff like that I mean but you know you're writing about I I guess she was the first pure celebrity wasn't she who was not really famous for, for being anything other than being famous I guess yeah i mean
2: she succeeded through sheer force of personality i think i mean she was a a, a, a successful actor in in her own right um but i mean she loved a wedding i mean she had enough of them um and i love that um opening scene from the from the piece and and it's now the podcast that's available where um she's taken up with um who is it i can't remember who it is now um but she's married to George Sanders, the, the kind of uh, the British actor, the uh, the ultimate kind of cad looking fella who was in All About Eve as the, as the critic. She's married to him at the time, but she's got the new fella in the house at Christmas. And George Sanders is creeping around in the shrubbery outside with a photographer and a private detective waiting to catch his wife in flagrante with this new fella in the house. And they burst into the room and start snapping away. And George Sanders shouts, Merry Christmas, everyone. And Jharjar is just completely unfazed by this and says, George, how lovely to see you. Come downstairs, your presence under the tree. I mean, she was proper showbiz. I mean and and an incredible life. And I think only recently, since you know, since we've done the the podcast and the and the feature her remains have been returned to Budapest because she, she never lost that link with Hungary. She couldn't really go back after under communism and stuff. I think she was effectively banned from going back. Uh, But after her death, they've taken some of her remains to be buried back in uh, her homeland of Hungary. So retaining that, that kind of uh, European-ness that she really played on during her career, like you say, with the accent and with the expansive gestures and, you know, the Americans love all that stuff, don't they? But yeah, so another great character that we've covered and, say we've got 200 plus to choose from so far and we're still going strong
3: we are and uh the one we're going to play for for people at the end of this podcast is is uh i don't know how you, how you pronounce this, his surname is, is the composer is, is it joseph bologna or or bologna or bologna is what i'd say although yeah it's probably i don't know if that's true or not that's
2: just the way i'd say it with my O level french
3: without enormous spoilers what are people going to find out about him
2: uh, a, a real kind of trailblazer, really. Um, a, a, a composer and an instrumentalist who succeeded in France and in Britain, um, despite being a, a black man. Basically, he was a real, really unusual for the times, but he, he, uh, his is a great story as well. So, yeah, we won't say too much about him, but it's, it's a real pioneering um, story full of ups and downs. And uh, yeah, definitely worth a listen.
3: So that is to look forward to. That's at the end of this podcast. Um, in this week's New European, also to look forward to, you have written about 30 great European books uh, to take on your holidays. I think they, they, they all came out or they all came out in translation during during the, the pandemic. Yeah. Is this a sort of a golden age of, of translated books now? There, there seems there seem to be, you know, translations seem to be more popular than ever. They seem to certainly seem to be more um, more obvious than ever. And, you know, there's some incredible quality coming out there, isn't there? There really is. I think um, people have traditionally
2: kind of looked down at translated fiction thinking, well, I'm not reading the original text mm. here. I'm reading somebody's, it's filtered through somebody. And, you know, in the olden days, certainly you could get some really iffy translations of. of, of of novels by classic writers. You know, the great Russian novelists really suffered from some iffy translations in the early part of the 20th century. But currently there's a real crop of um, terrific translations. And I think I, I kind of prefer to refer to them as collaborations because you need to be obviously fluent in the original language but with a, and with a really sensitive ear for the way it's written but you need to be a good writer yourself as well and that's a, that's an unusual combination of skills and at the moment there are a, a great number of Really, really good translators from um, from different languages. Um, I'm thinking of people like Charlotte Collins, who does a lot of um, uh, translations from um, German language stuff. And 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 it is a real skill. And the translations are getting better, and the novels are getting better. And there are a number of publishers, um, like people like Pushkin Press and Istros Books, um, who are really pushing translated fiction as well. And it's a it's a big deal for a publisher because. Most publishers, you get a manuscript sent in, you think, yeah, we can publish that. We'll edit it a bit. We'll 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 um, turn it into a book and we'll publish it. That's fine. Whereas with a translated book, you've got to get the original and think that's a really good book. And then you've got to kind of match it up with the, the right translator. Who you know, is going to be uh, the right person for the book and the right person with the sensitive ear to handle that text. And it is a big gamble for any publisher, especially in the last couple of years when publishing any kind of book has been a bit of a gamble so i really wanted to highlight um the fiction that's been published in translation into english from across europe um that's come out in the pandemic because this is this is the toughest time to uh publish a translated work of fiction and there is so much good stuff about uh, at the moment and in translation i can't bang the drum enough for the quality of stuff i mean i've picked 30 For this week's paper, and I'm doing that as someone who's not a big fan of those kind of summer reading roundups because I think, you know, most of it's a kind of a bit of a racket, really. Uh, But a lot of back scratching, isn't there? Yeah, there is a bit, yeah, and it's all like what's coming out now that needs 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 publicising, and they tend to go in, so they can be a bit hit or miss. Those those recommendations, plus how do I know what people want to read on holiday? So, but what I wanted to do this time was just kind of highlight the quality of the books that are out there at this difficult time for publishing in general, let alone small publishers publishing quite sort of niche translated works of fiction, but which are brilliant. And I, I, to be honest, I trouble narrowing it down to 30 that have been published since the start of the pandemic at the start of last year, because there has been so much good stuff and there's more and more coming as well. I I mean, there aren't many outlets other than the new European that kind of, Publicize this stuff, or, or certainly give it an extended focus. I mean, the, the, there are papers that publish the odd review of a, a translated work of fiction, but I think I think we've got the right platform with the New European to to push this stuff because. For a start, not many of us have been able to travel in Europe for the last year and a half. We've all been, you know, we've been able to travel further than the post office, probably in the last couple of years. So it's a good way of escaping to the continent that we all love as well. And I've tried to pick a selection that covers as geographically as much of the continent as possible. From you know, we've got Iceland all the way over to, to Georgia. And I've tried to also to mix it up in the kind of style of books so there's a few thrillers there's a few quite dense literary uh, kind of offerings they're all in paperback so they'll fit in your tote bag for the beach as well but um you know there's some comedies so I've tried to really pick a selection of some of the best stuff that's out there that if you are going on holiday and you are looking to escape to Europe in your head if you can't do it physically then um you probably can't go wrong with a lot of the stuff I've recommended in this week's paper
3: Let's, uh, before I let you go, let's just talk about a a couple of them then. I mean, you know, I think people will be familiar with Elena uh, Ferrante, won't they? Um, Yeah. But, but, um, I mean, there's a couple that really stood out for me because they sound like my kind of thing. Uh, Blind Man uh sounds uh, great and reminds me of the great song blindness by the fall as well <laughs> um an amiable an amiable visually impaired book editor enters the world of politics and finds himself transformed by power not in a good way what what, what else can you tell us about that
2: um, well, it's, it's it's an unusual one, and it's come out of Slovenia. And you don't see much Slovenian fiction in translation these days. Um, and it's by a guy called Mija Chanda, uh, translated by Raleigh Grau. And it's published by Eastros Books, who I mentioned earlier, who, who are turning out some really, really good translated fiction. And they're quite a small outfit. So I, I, I really find the push publishers doing that kind of thing that are taking risks and publishing fiction that might not you might not see in English otherwise and yeah I mean it's basically um, I mean you could even say it's a summary of contemporary Slovenia and recent events in Slovenia because um, Slovenia is sort of teetering towards the kind of Orban Hungarian style of of, of government at the moment which is a little bit concerning especially considering as when it was the first country to secede from Yugoslavia and it did it pretty peacefully in in terms of what happened in the ensuing years in the early 90s in the former Yugoslavia. And Slovenia had always looked more towards the west of Europe than it did to being t- to the east and to the rest of Yugoslavia. It was the most geared up to be part of Europe at the, the, after, the, uh, after the war. So it is a bit concerning to see the way things are turning out in Slovenia at the moment. Uh, but blind man is a really good way of taking the temperature, really, of, of, of the conditions of Slovenia um, uh, uh, as it's turning out now. I mean, I think the book would have been written a couple of years ago, so it predates the, the, the current events a little bit. But you'd certainly get some really good context and background to to, uh, to the way things are heading in Slovenia at the moment.
3: Uh, and the other one, I mean, among several that I've got down here, but the, when you say that The Ghost of Frédéric Chopin by Éric uh, Fay, uh which is from 1990s progress. so it says that a tie in with channel 4's uh, walter presents platform does that mean it's has this already been been filmed or is is that something else i don't think so i think it might be in the pipeline i can't right. I'm,
2: I'm not 100% sure to be honest but i think walter presents is a terrific thing because yes. like like you do with you know this this roundup of books in in this week's new european you can dip into walter presents on the channel 4 thing and find some really good um Drama from from Europe um, and beyond, um, and I, I, and I think it's a really good idea to tie that in with books as well, even if whether they're being made or not, it gives you that kind of almost that stamp of guaranteed quality that if, if it's if it's part of water presents then it's going to be good and the ghost of frederick chopin by eric Fay, which is translated by sam taylor and it's published by pushkin again one of the one of the publishers that have published some really really good um translated fiction at the moment uh it's it's a really good book that one i've, I've really enjoyed it it's it's kind of a, a woman who uh claims to be channeling Chopin the ghost of Chopin or Chopin in the afterlife and she's turning out musical manuscripts um that are certainly in Chopin's style um, and there's a guy making a documentary who um, is fascinated by this and so he starts following this woman and, and focusing on this woman to make a documentary about her and it kind of goes off in different directions and keeps you guessing um so yeah that's that's one I'd, I'd certainly recommend as a, as a good summer holiday read for the beach
3: and maybe just one more that you you particularly think people should look out for uh, one I really liked um was uh, from the Pyrene
2: press which is another another independent publisher that's produces some good stuff um and it's from Georgia it's kind of so we're just about in Europe there anyway um, and it's called the pear field um by oh, I can never pronounce the name it's nana Ek um, Vimitishvili, translated by Elizabeth Highway. And that was long listed, but for the Mann International Booker Prize this year. And in my opinion, should have got further than the long list, should have at least made the shortlist, because it's it's a really, really good story, um, beautifully translated by Elizabeth Highway. Uh, and you don't see much literature coming out of Georgia in English translation. And in, in, And if if there's more of it as good as this, then hopefully we're going to see more. Um, It's set in a children's institution outside Tbilisi. And it's a girl who's in this institution. She's got a younger brother and she's determined to do, anything to give this this kid a a chance in life um, against the odds because you know you can probably imagine children's homes outside Tbilisi aren't the most salubrious of institutions at the best of times Um, and it's it's moving it's beautifully written uh, and that comes across in the translation as well and I think it should at least got to the shortlist of the Man International um, Booker Prize this year. as an aside, I actually think the International Booker Prize is often much better than the, mm-hmm. the, the Booker Prize itself, which I think I wrote in a, in a piece um, the other week saying saying something similar. I mean, the, the Booker long list has just come out uh, with 13 books on it. And there's some really good books on it. Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead is one of my favourite books of the year. that, And I was really pleased to see that on the long list. But it's it's quite a safe selection of, of, of books. Um, it's trying to cover as much as it can um, but the the international booker I think you get much more variety and you, you're much likely to stumble across something unexpected that you like on the on the international booker list uh, and the pair um, stands up um, to that scrutiny because um, as I say it, it made the long list of the international booker but I think it should have been much better if I had to pick one of the 30 books from the the piece this week then I think I would go for the
3: Pearfield. Check it out. Thank you so much to Charlie Connolly. It's been uh, it's been wonderful to uh, to speak to you. Um, I'm sure we will be speaking again soon after this podcast. uh, You'll be able to hear an episode of Charlie Connolly's uh, Great European Lives podcast. Get more of that wherever you uh, find your podcast, wherever you downloaded this one from uh and charlie's piece about 30 european books to read on whatever holiday you manage to take this summer is in the summer edition of the new european the one with boris johnson as an ice cream cone on the front if you'd like to enjoy more from the new european read more from charlie do join us by subscribing the new european.co.uk slash subscribe charlie connelly a great favorite of mine and i hope yours too uh after the Hall of Shame, you'll be able to hear an edition of Charlie's Great European Lives podcast, which means we are now entering the Hall of Shame. It's our home for bad politicians, Brexiteers hoist by their own petard, things that annoy me generally. And Madeleine Grant is in the Hall of Shame. She's a Daily Telegraph columnist. She's naturally then a Brexiteer. And she wrote this week uh, an article whose headline was Indolent Britain has given up on working. And I know that's true because Madeline Grant's ex-boyfriend, Lawrence Fox, he hasn't had a proper job for months. Um, Pretty Patel is in the Hall of Shame. She's launched a new plan for crime. We had some great listener responses to, to this too. Rob Fenlon uh, sums it up better than I could she's planning another crime it's it's nice of her to know let us know in advance um i don't know if you saw this but the police federation of england and wales has now said that it no longer has confidence in Pretty patella i don't know whether you can deport the entire police federation of england and wales but i suspect we're about to find out alack egad harumph it's an corner it's the magical time once again when i read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the Ridiculous Daily Express. And this week she writes, I was the only member of the congregation in church last Sunday not wearing a mask. That's the best kind of Christianity, isn't it, Anne? When you love and care for your fellow man so much that you just can't wait to share COVID-19 with them. It's what Jesus would have done, really, the miracle of the, the five loaves the uh, two fishes and the COVID-19 but foremost in the hall of shame this week is Darren Grimes remember him the young Brexiteer who magically found 625,000 quid through his letterbox in the last days of the referendum campaign, put there by Vote Leave for Darren to spend on whatever he liked because Vote Leave were over their spending limits. And guess what? He, incredibly, he spent it on the same company Vote Leave were already using to do their social media. Amazing, that not it, really? It's not what I would have spent 625,000 pounds on if I'd have been 19, but there you go. Um, he wrote this week, I find Lifeboat Charity Lifeboat Charity RNLI's rescue missions in the Channel to be deeply irresponsible. If you're sure that getting into an unseaworthy vessel will see you carried across the Channel by trained professionals, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you hitch a ride to Britain? The kind and humane thing to do at the English Channel would be to turn back the boats and end the expectation that anyone can get to Britain illegally. This would be the morally just response. So there we go then. Uh, In Darren's world, saving lives is immoral. Turning people back, letting them take their chances in tiny crafts on the channel is morally just. I think we are through the looking glass here, aren't we? And Britain has set sail for the sunlit uplands now, hasn't it? Our boat's taken in water, the shelves in its galley are empty. But don't worry, because Captain Darren Grimes is at the wheel. I can hear the band striking up. Is it going to be nearer, my God, to thee, like they played uh, on the Titanic? Do you know what? It it sounds a bit to me like the theme from that 1980s TV show, The The Love Boat. The hate boat, maybe. It's the, the hate boat. Soon we'll be making another run. The hate boat promises something for everyone. Well, as long as they're not foreign. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guests and thanks to you for listening. Thanks as always, to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. As mentioned earlier, we're taking a short break after this podcast. We'll be back on Friday the 13th of August. What could possibly go wrong with a a podcast that came out on Friday the 13th? There will be a couple of changes that I think you will enjoy. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Join our Facebook readers group. Follow The New European on Twitter at The New European and follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.
2: Hi, it's Charlie Connolly here. I write every week in The New European on books and literature and great European lives. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, you can join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Great European lives from the New European Joseph Bologne Chevalier de Saint Georges twenty fifth of december seventeen forty five to the twelfth of june seventeen ninety nine. On the ninth of april, seventeen eighty seven, at the behest of the Prince of Wales, an unusual fencing match took place in London. Between Mademoiselle Dion, a French former diplomat and spy, who lived as a woman for decades, and Joseph Bologne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, one of Europe's finest fencers of the age. The novelty of a lady in petticoats engaging the most able and experienced master of the noble science of defence excited universal pleasantry. Even such as had formerly known her en culotte were not a little surprised at the skill she showed at fencing with Mr. Saint-Georges wrote a spectator afterwards. Strange as it sounds, the Mademoiselle, who had variously fought as a soldier during the Seven Years' War and lived in Empress Elizabeth of Russia's court as a woman, was the least remarkable of the two combatants. Her opponent was a man who lived an extraordinary life in extraordinary circumstances. Joseph Bologne wrote three string quartets, two symphonies, six comic operas, three violin sonatas, and fourteen violin concertos, that are still performed more than two hundred years after his death. He was one of the finest violinists of an era that produced more than its fair share of virtuosi, was regarded as the best fencer in Europe, and was a leading light of the campaign to abolish slavery in Britain and France. He performed for and with European royalty, and drew considerable crowds to the concert halls and fencing-pieces of the continent's highest capitals of culture. John Adams, the President of the United States, described Bologna as the most accomplished man in Europe. Yet there's still a strong chance you've never heard of him. The reason why can possibly be found in an item that appeared in British newspapers during December 1786, that noted how saint George was superior at the sword, and praised his peerless abilities as a dancer. He plays seven instruments beyond any individual in the world, it gushed, and speaks twenty-six languages, maintaining public theses in each. Then came the payoff. He walks around the various sciences like the master of each, it read. And, strange to be mentioned to white men, this Monsieur Saint-Georges is a mulatto." the son of an African mother. To this day, Joseph Bologna is more often than not referred to as the Black Mozart, when by rights his achievements deserve neither qualification nor comparison. He lived through some of Europe's most tumultuous times, often finding himself at the heart of them, overcoming a range of obstacles to succeed in a range of fields. If the polymath traditionally struggles to achieve the respect they deserve, A black polymath in late 18th century Europe had to struggle more than most. Bologna was born on Christmas Day 1745 at Basse-Terre on the island of Guadeloupe in the Caribbean Sea. His father was Georges de Boulogne Saint-Georges, a 34-year-old slaver and plantation owner, and his mother Anne, a 16-year-old slave in the service of Georges' wife. Unusually for a time when slaves of African descent were regarded by their owners as savages, Georges was not only willing to acknowledge his paternal responsibility, but act upon it too. When Joseph was seven years old, his father took him to France and placed him in a boarding school, returning two years later with Anne and installing mother and son in an apartment in the Saint-Germain district of Paris. Bologna showed early promise as a violinist, harpsichordist, and particularly as a fencer. Entering the elite fencing academy of Nicolas de la Bercière at thirteen, and emerging six years later as a swordsman so accomplished, he became a member of the King's Guard, given the title Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Agile, intelligent, and skilful, he was the most highly sought-after name at fencing events on both sides of the English Channel. Rarely allowing opponents to even score a hit, let alone win a match. Yet it would be as a musician and composer that Bologna would make his name. By 1769 he had become such an accomplished violinist with the Parisian orchestra Le Concert des Amateurs that he was elevated to concertmaster. Three years later he became a soloist, and in 1773 Bologna was appointed director of the orchestra. The influential Lolmanach Musical wrote in 1775 that the orchestra under Bologna's direction was the best orchestra for symphonies in Paris, and perhaps in Europe. His own brilliance as a performer was such that leading contemporary composers wrote violin concertos specifically for him, and he filled concert halls and salons wherever he went, often performing his own compositions. Before long he was tutoring, performing for, and performing with, Marie Antoinette at the Palace in Versailles. He became so distinguished he was able to commission six symphonies from the great Joseph Haydn. A 1789 performance of one of his own violin concertos in England inspired one attendee to write, His style is masterly and brilliant, superior to that of any gentleman in this country. It wasn't all plain sailing. On the same visit to England he was confronted in the street by a man armed with a pistol demanding his valuables. When Boulogne disarmed the man, according to one report, four more rogues hidden until then attacked him, and he put them all out of commission. Monsieur de Saint-Georges received only some contusions, which did not keep him from going on that night to play music in the company of friends. It is probable that this was an assassination attempt at the behest of supporters of the slave trade. Bologna was crisscrossing the channel regularly at that time, partly to perform concerts and recitals, but mostly to lend his support to the increasingly powerful anti-slavery lobby in England. He met regularly with abolitionists like William Wilberforce and John Wilkes, and assisted in translating British abolitionist pamphlets into French for the Société des Amis des Noirs, the Society of Friends of Black People that he'd helped to establish in France. When revolution broke out in 1789, Bologna, despite his aristocratic connections, immediately sided with the revolutionaries. In the Manifesto of the Revolution, he saw a perfect opportunity to end both the French slave trade and the inequalities and injustices experienced by black people in France. For all that he'd raised himself to the highest echelons of French society— there were always barriers and humiliations. As a black man, he was barred from inheriting his father's titles, and forbidden to marry a woman from the higher classes. Hence the revolutionary promise of equal rights for all trumped any connection he felt to the aristocracy and his noble friends and colleagues, including his patron, the Duke d'Orléans, who had set Bologna up with an apartment in the Palais-Royal as well as providing him with a comfortable stipend. When the revolution broke out, Bologna was living in Lille, where he became one of the first to volunteer for the new Garde Nationale. He took to military activity with the same ease with which he had taken to music and fencing, and by 1792 he was a colonel in command of the 1,000-strong Légion Franche de Cavalerie des Américains et du Midi the first regiment of any European army to be made up entirely of black soldiers. So successful was he as a leader that before long the unit became known simply as the Légion de Saint-Georges. Despite leading his troops with distinction, Bologna's extracurricular musical activities – he even formed a small orchestra of military men – contributed to accusations that he was not giving the revolution his fullest attention. In November 1793 he was arrested under the new French law of suspects, and imprisoned without charge as part of the Great Terror, until, after almost a year, the Committee of Public Safety found that Boulogne had been removed without cause. He was released from prison, but would never regain his command. It must have come as some consolation that while he was in prison the National Convention abolished slavery in the French colonies. But for all his achievements, for all his brilliance in music, fencing, and as a military leader, Joseph Bologna was blighted by prejudice throughout his life. He reached the highest levels of French society, and consorted with princes when he visited England, but there was always something preventing his complete acceptance. Tropes that are still familiar today were whispered behind his back, and sometimes expressed openly such as this snippet from the Times in September 1789, referring to his conduct on the fencing piece, Monsieur saint george acquired his war-whoop in excursions against the Cherokee Indians, it said entirely inaccurately of his occasional exuberant yelps during fencing encounters. It may be a very proper accompaniment for a tomahawk or scalping-knife, but it surely is very unbecoming in the elegant exercise of the sword." Never mind that he composed some of the most exquisite violin concertos ever written. To the ignorant, he would always be a savage. Great European Lives is brought to you by The New European. It's written and presented by Charlie Connolly, and the series producer is Steve Anglesey.